Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for letting us into your space today. We really appreciate being a part of your day. We want to let you know that we have a lot going on here at Christ Community. So if you have an interest in checking us out, go ahead and go on our website and check out our coming up page. And we also have a groups page if you're interested in getting connected that way. We encourage you to check that out. Also, please like and subscribe our page on YouTube so that when more content comes out, you know about it. We hope you enjoy the message. Amen. Uh, we are in a teaching series where we are walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to, the, to a church in the city of Corinth. The church was kind of a mess. There was a lot of immaturity and pride and relational division and sinful behavior going on. And so Paul, in this letter, addresses these issues. He lovingly and yet very bluntly speaks to what was going on in that church. And what we're discovering is that sometimes he addresses topics that are challenging and even offensive to our modern ears. It would be Honestly, it'd be very tempting for us to just skip over those passages so as not to cause any you know, potential offense and instead to just talk about something more acceptable. But I don't think that's what any of us really want. What we want is for God to speak his loving truth into our lives, even when it's uncomfortable or pushes some of our buttons or triggers things in us. I mean, I gotta admit, uh, when we decided to do this teaching series on the book of 1 Corinthians, the passage that caused me the most trepidation was probably the passage that we're looking at today. It's just three verses long, but there are three really challenging verses that, in my opinion, have often been misinterpreted and also misused in the church as a weapon against certain groups of people without an openness to how these verses actually speak to all of us not just a select group. And so my heart is really that all of us would humbly and sincerely open our minds and our hearts to what God might want to say to each one of us in these verses. Now, as we saw last week, in the first part of chapter six, Paul addresses the issue of people in the church going to the court to sue each other and rather than being willing as believers to kind of work through their, their conflict. But Beginning in verse 9, Paul broadens the application of this with these hard-hitting words. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. This is God's word. So let's unpack these verses. Clearly what Paul is doing here is laying out before these believers two very different ways of living. One is to live in the experiential reality of sin, the other is to live in the experiential reality of salvation. That's what he's talking about. Now, the fact that he is saying these things to a group of Christians tells us that this is a choice that we regularly face. This passage is not written to non-believers. It is written as a warning to Christians. So let's start where Paul does with this serious warning to us about sin. In this passage, Paul gives a very strong warning to us as Christians. 
in terms of the experiential danger of living in sin. So what exactly is his warning? Well, look with me, beginning of verse nine. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Okay, so Paul is warning us to not be deceived by sin, thinking that our sinful behavior is no big deal. See, that, that's one of the biggest lies that sin presents to us. Ah, this is no big deal. Everyone does it. No one will know. No harm done. Just have a little fun, whatever. Paul is directly and forcefully confronting that particular deception by exposing the truth. Those who are living in sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. He then goes on to describe some specific examples of sinful living. Verse 9, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, Paul's point is that people living in these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the question is, what does he mean by that? What what does this mean to not inherit the kingdom? Now, most pastors and, and scholars that I looked at automatically conclude that Paul is talking about salvation here that anyone who is persistently engaging in these sins is not saved. But I feel like that interpretation creates lots of interpretive problems because as we're gonna see in a moment, Christians struggle with all the things on this list. So at what point does a believer in Jesus lose the gospel promise of salvation based on their sinful behavior? I don't think that's how the gospel works. I don't think the gospel works that way. It is, it, it is not based, it is never based on our work, but on Christ's work. So I don't think Paul is talking about salvation here. So what is Paul talking about? Again, Paul is talking about inheriting the kingdom. What's an inheritance? It's the reward you receive from your relational connection to a person. We've all seen those movies where the wealthy person, person dies and family gathers, you know, for the reading of the will. And the, the, the adult children are waiting to find out what inheritance they will receive. And the lawyer opens the document and reads to so my son, John, thank you for your love and faithfulness to me. I give you a million dollars. And to my daughter, Susan, over the years, you've squandered the thousands of dollars I've given you. You've never made any effort to connect with me. You slandered my name, so I give you my cat or whatever. Okay, um, But notice, this isn't about Susan no longer being in the family. This is about her inheritance being tied to the self-centeredness she demonstrated with her dad. See, Paul's point in writing this warning to these Christians is not, I'm warning you, if you persist in this, you're going to hell. No, I believe Paul's point is this. Do you not realize that your choices to engage in any of these sinful behaviors of the world around you are seriously impacting your experience of rewards in the next life. The extent of your inheritance in eternity is being negatively impacted by the choices you are making in this life. See, that's the question Paul wants us to be asking, not, have I lost my salvation? No, Paul urges us to consider how our choices in this life are impacting our rewards in the next. There are are significant eternal 
consequences for our choices to engage in sinful behavior in terms of rewards. Now, if you think I'm being off base here, I want you to look a few chapters earlier in the same letter in chapter three. Look at what Paul says. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what he has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Paul is talking about how certain people will make it to heaven. They will, they, they, they will make it to heaven, but everything they built in this life will be burned up because it was eternally worthless. All the time and effort given to sin will just disintegrate. We, we get to heaven, we'll get to heaven empty-handed when our hands could have been so full. Our sinful choices in this life impact our experience of rewards in the next. <clears throat> so let's look in more detail at this list of things that will keep us from inheriting rewards in heaven. First item Paul mentions is the sexually immoral, which refers to any sexual involvement outside the covenant of marriage. Paul is describing a person who uses sex for selfish pleasure rather than committed covenantal love. <clears throat> Paul then uses the word idolaters, which is a broad term that speaks of us worshiping anything other than God. Our reputation, our appearance, our sports team, our children, our purchases, our savings account, etc. I mean, the, the list is long of all the things that we tend to love more than God. That's idolatry. Paul then mentions adulterers which refers to people who break their marriage covenant by engaging sexually with another person. And according to Jesus, that's not just defined by outward behavior, but by inward lust. Jesus said anyone who looks lustfully at another person is committing adultery in their heart. Now, I want to skip for a moment what's mentioned next because it requires a bit more thorough explanation of meaning in, in our cultural context especially. Verse 10, Paul mentions thieves people who take things that aren't theirs. This isn't just robbing a bank. This could be taking money that's owed to the government, taking items from our workplace, etc. Paul then mentions the greedy. Greed is one of those acceptable sins in our culture, right? It's a sin we don't talk about much or evaluate our lives regarding much, but, but you know the stats as well as me. Half the world's population lives on less than most of us spend at Starbucks, $2 a day, and yet the average giving of a Christian in America is just a little over 2% of our income. So we use 98% of what we make to spend on ourselves. And I'm just wondering, how does that look from a heavenly perspective? I'm just, I'm thinking that looks a lot like greed. Paul then mentions drunkards, those who give themselves over to alcohol, 
Next is slanderers, those who spend their time criticizing and making fun of and insulting people that they disagree with. And this was before social media. And then swindlers. This word can carry with it a sense of abuse, violence, or someone who is extorting or taking advantage of another person. Now, before we go back and explore the other two words on the list, I'm just curious, do you see yourself anywhere on this list? Does this list mention anything that you struggle with or often give in to or perhaps are fully living in? Absolutely. Is there anyone here that doesn't struggle with something on this list? This list is a warning to all of us, to all of us. Okay, let's go back now and look at the other two items mentioned in the list that Paul mentioned. They're two separate items, but the NIV translates them as one. But the reason I'm, I want to take a little more time here is not because, I hope you understand, given our cultural context, I felt like it would be helpful to take a little more time and unpack these words. But by doing so, I am not putting them above anything else on this list in terms of sinfulness or whatever. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, this is not a categorizing, it's not at all. I'm not doing that and Paul doesn't do that. Every item on this list is sin. In verse nine, the text reads, nor men who have sex with men. Now there are actually two Greek words that Paul uses here and they're kind of unusual words. And so it's a bit more challenging to unpack the meaning of these words. The first word is the Greek word malakoi, which literally means soft. That's what it means, soft. And this word was most often used in Greco-Roman literature to describe men who looked and acted like women. We might use the term effeminate, but I want to be really careful with that word because there are, there are gender stereotypes in every culture, and these stereotypes don't always accurately or and comprehensively reflect masculinity. Like, if you're a man, you need to hunt and play sports and drink beer and never cry. I mean, those are just like cultural stereotypes. Those are not biblical definitions of masculinity. Those are cultural stereotypes that have nothing to do with masculinity. Real men can be sensitive and enjoy poetry and writing and going deep emotionally. So Paul is not talking here about cultural stereotypes of masculinity. What he seems to be describing, again, we have a huge cultural difference, right? And so we're trying to figure out what this word means from 2,000 years ago and other literature and all that. But what Paul seems to be describing are men who act and dress like women and engage sexually as a woman in that culture. In other words, they would assume the more passive role sexually in that culture. Now, the second word is a compound word. It's highly unusual. So it's a compound word, two words put together. And it's not used ever in the, else in the New Testament. And it's not used much in other literature. And so we're trying to figure out what does this word, this combination word mean? The, 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 it's, it's, it's the Greek word arsenokoites. Okay, so the Greek word arsen means male. And the word koites literally means bed. So other words would be placed with koites, so sleeping with a servant, sleeping with, so, so it's, it's commonly, you know, you use it this way, men in bed or something in bed to refer to sexual engagement. So in, in my study of this, I feel like the NIV translation is most likely what Paul's referring to, men 
bedding with or having sex with other men. Now, some people argue that these words put together are specifically and only referring to pedestry, which was very common in the Greco-Roman world. It wasn't a big deal back then, which is just kind of disgusting, but for an adult male to have have sex with a teenage boy or whatever, it just wasn't a big deal in that culture. Okay, so some people say, no, that's what he's talking. He's just talking. He's only talking about pedestry. Here's the problem, I think, with defining it only as pedestry. So hang with me here. This is really important, but it's a little technical. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, so the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, New Testament in Greek. There was early, in, like before Christ, there was a, a, a translation of the Old Testament that was done in Greek. It's called the Septuagint. So Paul had access to the Septuagint. If you look at the two verses in Leviticus that specifically prohibit a man having sex with another man, it's Luke 18 and Luke 20. If you look at those verses in the Septuagint, the same two Greek words are used. These same two Greek words are used, arson and coitus. It is very likely that Paul either invented the word or he certainly combined these two words to describe what Leviticus was talking about, to describe homosexual behavior. Later, Jewish writings seem to confirm this understanding of this compound word. Okay, so based on the Greek and Hebrew and other literature of this time period, I believe Paul is describing here two things, men sexually engaging with other men, but doing so as a woman, and men who are sexually engaging with other men. These behaviors, along with all the others on this list, are sinful. So I want, I want to stop here and I want to make some pastoral comments about this behavior in particular, the what we just talked about. Because I realize this is a huge issue in our culture and is a very personal issue to all of us. This is not simply a theological issue. This is a deeply personal, excruciatingly difficult issue that touches all of our lives in some way. Some in this room struggle with same-sex attraction and maybe you haven't told anyone because of the shame you feel and not knowing how other Christians will respond. Some in this room are parents or grandparents or friends of a person who is wrestling with their sexual identity or is living a gay lifestyle. Some in this room are in a sexual relationship with someone from the same sex. And there are countless other situations and stories represented here. So for me to stand up here and make bold theological pronouncements without acknowledging the very real and difficult stories surrounding this issue would not reflect the heart of Jesus. And neither would me standing up here trying to make Paul's words say something that they don't actually say in order for this message to be more acceptable to our culture. What I long to try and communicate is the heart of Jesus for all of us. Can we all agree that this list, the entire list, levels the playing field? None of the behaviors on this list are elevated over others in terms of sinfulness. They are all sin. And look, my heart breaks over how this passage has often been used by Christians to single out and denounce a person engaging in homosexual behavior all the while conveniently ignoring the sins they happen to struggle with on the same list. So if this passage doesn't personally convict each of us, and we're only 
thinking of other people that fit into this list, then I'm not sure we're really looking at this passage the way God intends for us to look at this passage. This passage challenges and convicts and calls all of us to examine our own lives in light of the inheritance that we're hoping for. Whether our story involves looking at porn or our self-centered impulsive spending habits or our tendency to take things that don't belong to us or the ease with which we denigrate other people or our sexual engagement in a same-sex relationship or our sleeping with someone we're not married to or our tendency to worship something other than God. Can we all agree that no behavior on this list is in a special category of sinfulness? and that they all reflect very real vulnerabilities and struggles that Christians can have. Now, thankfully, Paul doesn't stop there. After strongly warning all of us about the damage of all these sins in our lives, he then gives us an inspiring vision of our salvation. After this brutally challenging description of all these things that can rob us of receiving an amazing inheritance, Paul then completely shifts gears in a really cool way. Verse 11. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. See, Paul is reminding them and us, even though we can freely choose to give into and live in sinful behavior, that's not what God is calling us to. That's not the life he has intended for us. That's not our true identity. As Christians, our identity is not found in these desires of our heart to have more money or to sexually engage with another person outside of marriage or to live a gay lifestyle or to take advantage of other people or to let alcohol consume our lives. No, these desires, though real, are not our true identity. No matter how often or earnestly our culture tries to convince us that this is our true identity, it's not. Our identity as believers, our identity is established in our salvation. At the moment we place our trust in Christ, Paul says here, we are washed, we are completely cleansed of sin. And look, this is more than just a moment of salvation reality. Listen, anytime we allow ourselves through our choices to once again be defiled by sin, by giving into that sin, anytime we do that, the unlimited supply of the blood of Jesus is available to cleanse us again. But there's more. Not only are we washed, Paul says we're sanctified. We looked at this several weeks ago, how this word sanctified means holy and how the word holy ultimately means whole. Every person on earth longs to be whole. But unfortunately, when we live in sin, that sin robs us of wholeness. Greed, stealing, slander, sexual immorality, porn, all experientially rob us of being whole. Paul's reminding us that the only way to truly experience wholeness is through the work of Jesus on the cross and his spirit applying that work to our hearts. God is able to help us walk in wholeness from anything on this list. In Christ, we are washed. In Christ, we're sanctified. One more thing, Paul says you were justified. What does justified mean? Just as if I'd never sinned, right? God declares us righteous before him. No condemnation. This is who you are. This is who I am in Christ. Are we willing to seek after and pursue and live in the realities of our true identity? Well, sure, what does that look like? Well, a few years after Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians, 
He penned a very important letter to the churches in Rome, and I think he had time to kind of think through this issue in a bit more detail, and his words are so helpful, so check this out. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness And the result is eternal life. See, notice the choice he is laying before us as Christians. This is the choice all of us have. Are we going to continue to offer our bodies to impurity and sin and reap the consequences of that? Or will we choose to offer our bodies as slaves to God and reap the consequences of that? Holiness and wholeness of being and eternal rewards. That's the invitation for all of us. Okay, but here's our experiential reality. We sort of live between those things, don't we? We, we do. We, we, we experience salvation in Christ, but we still at times struggle in this life. We struggle with desires we don't want. We struggle with addictions that are hard to resist. We struggle to obey God as we live in a culture that celebrates many of these sinful behaviors. You know, having those desires is not sin. I want to be really clear. Having those desires is not sin. The issue is what we do with those desires. See, Paul urges us to continually and completely offer ourselves to God and to let him help us walk in wholeness and reap the benefits of that in this life and in the next Now, I also want to remind us of something that Paul has mentioned over and over again in this letter. It's kind of implied, but it's really important. We are in this together. We are in this together. We all have our battles with sin. We all experience successes and failures, and no one is to walk alone in either of those. Look, I I mean, I, I long for us. I hope we're already this, but I don't know. I long for us to be a church where it is totally safe for any of us to admit that we're struggling with something on this list, where it's safe to admit you're struggling with greed or with an alcohol addiction or with same-sex attraction or porn or whatever. Don't go it alone. Don't believe the lie that your struggle is too shameful to share with anyone else. That's not true. Everything mentioned on this list is something that people in this church are struggling with. You are not alone. See, when when we bring it out of hiding, it loses so much of its power because shame is broken. We realize there's grace here. It takes us bringing it out of hiding to discover there's grace here. We are all on a journey towards wholeness to experience the fullness of resources that are available to us in Christ. I was talking with a friend of mine recently who's a professional organizer. She goes into messy hoarding type homes and she helps people get organized. And she told me that when she's standing on the front porch for the first time, having arrived to help this person organize their home, when the person answers the door, they always have the same reaction. I am so embarrassed for you to come in and see my home. And my friend always says to them, Let me come in 
and I want you to watch my reaction as I walk through your home. So as she walks through the home, there's no shock, there's no horror on her face. She looks all around, and then she says, here's the plan for making your home all that you want it to be. The shame disappears when the person sees her response to the messiness. See, it is my heart in this church that when anyone shares a struggle that they're ashamed of, they experience a response of calm, loving grace and an arm around their shoulder saying, let's walk together through this. Let's pursue wholeness together in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know, that's the response that Jesus has toward each one of us in the midst of any sin we struggle with. When, when, we, when we turn to him and we surrender to him, he puts his arm around us and says, hey, let me help you. Let me help you experience the joy and the freedom and the blessings of my holiness because it's what your heart and my heart ultimately long for. That's Jesus' response. And I pray it is our church's response as well. Amen. All right, let's stand as we open our heart to the Holy Spirit to respond to him. What we're gonna do here, this is just an opportunity. In a moment, I'm gonna pray an ancient prayer. Come Holy Spirit. And then we're gonna wait for like a minute in silence, we're just quieting our heart. And all we're doing is opening our hearts to the presence of God, each one of us. Sometimes I encourage you, invite you to, you can hold your hands if you're comfortable, hold your hands open in the posture of receiving. And this is kind of where heaven and earth meet, our hands open to heaven and our feet firmly planted on the ground. And, and here we are between heaven and earth saying, Holy Spirit, come. So let's do that. Just close your eyes if you're more comfortable that way. And let's open our heart to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. We open our hearts to you. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. Do in us what you want to do in each of us. As you're waiting on the Lord in a posture of waiting, I want to, I want to, and receiving, I want to just mention a couple things that have been stirring in my heart. One was right before the service. 
As we were praying, I, I, had to, I was reminded of the first or second verse in the entire Bible where it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, hovering over the chaos. And I had this really strong sense that for some of us, we feel in chaos. Maybe it's over this passage and desires we have, things going on, but there's confusion and chaos. And I, I really just have this strong sense that the Holy Spirit sees that and he wants to ho hover over that and bring life and speak life and create new things. He wants to breathe into that. And so if that's you, I, I wanna just pray for that. God, I pray. Holy Spirit, you would come and you would hover over those places in our lives that feel confusing and chaotic and frustrating. Maybe those places where we feel caught in a, in a sinful pathway that we cannot, we don't feel like we can stop. <clears throat> God, would you hover over those places? No shame, we welcome you into those places to bring life. The other response is, is probably where the Lord has already taken some of us here, but it's an invitation to offer ourselves to him, to open our front door and say, it's kind of a mess. Would you walk with me through here? And to let Jesus say to us, yeah, I see all that. Let's make your home. Let's together make your life what you long for it to be. So let's just take a moment and offer what Paul says in Romans 6. We offer ourselves, even the messiness and the shame, these things we're ashamed of, we offer ourselves right now, everything we offer to him. And we say, Jesus, walk with us through our house. Walk with us through these places. And would you bring your wholeness and your freedom and your joy? Come, Lord. For some of you, I think you know this, you, you need to bring it out of hiding. If you want to walk in freedom, you got to bring it out of hiding. So I pray for the courage to go to someone we trust and to bring secrets out of hiding so that the light of Jesus can shine and, and we can walk not alone, but together towards wholeness. Thank you, Lord. 
So we have the opportunity during our worship as we're gonna continue just to create response time, the Holy Spirit doing what he's doing in your heart as you're at your seat. We also wanna invite um, you to come to a table where the elements are here for the Lord's Supper, bread representing Jesus' body given for you, the blood, the, the Jews representing his blood he shed for the forgiveness of sins. The table is for sinners. This is all about what Jesus has done. And we need him. We need to be nourished and filled by him and his life, and his, his death and resurrection. And so this table, I, I pray at any time during worship, I invite you to come to a table and receive the elements and as you do that, not just symbolically, open your heart afresh to the fullness of who Jesus is. He sees everything about you and me, and he loves us, and he wants to walk with us in that. And so let's let the table be a place of reminder of all that he has done. And if at any point you want to just stay up here, this is ministry space. If you feel like God is stirring something in your heart, you can receive the elements and then just, you can stay up here. And we have our prayer team that would love to just come alongside you. And we're not going to ask what's going on, no specifics. We're just going to pray and bless whatever God's doing. So if you want to receive that, just stay up here after you receive the elements and our prayer team's available. Holy Spirit, just come, <laughs> continue to do what you want to do in us. We say yes. We say yes to you. Maybe, by the way, some of you, maybe it's your first time. Maybe you've never placed your trust in Christ. Man, you can do that right now. And then come up and receive the Lord's Supper. Just open your heart to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I need you. I believe you died on the cross for me and I open my heart to receive you. We say yes to you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Well, hey, coming out of that message, we know that God has been moving in your heart. He's been stirring. And there's probably some of you there who are like, I could just use somebody to talk to. Uh, we want to let you know that we actually have people available to connect with you, no matter the time of day, no matter even the week, right? You mm -hmm. could be watching this like a month later. Um, if you head to our website, cccgreeley.org, there's a little button there that you can click that says connect with us or chat with us. Mm -hmm. And when you click that, you can write whatever you want. And within minutes, literally, one of our pastoral staff will be reaching back out to you. And so if you're in a place right now where you need that, we just encourage you to reach out connect with us. We would love to walk with you on your journey. Um, but friends, we are so glad you joined us today. We hope that God was doing amazing things in your heart. Hope you have a great week.